Good morning. It's been a while since I've preached in here. I've been looking forward to it this week. Um, so it's good to be back in Door Hall and uh, speaking to y'all this morning about this very interesting parable that Jesus tells on the back of the parable we heard last week about the ten virgins. There were five virgins, we remember, who prepared for the bride, the bridegroom, and there were five who were unprepared. They filled their lamps with oil and waited, and the bridegroom came, and five were allowed in, and the other five who had gone were not allowed in later. So it's the story about the kingdom coming, the kingdom coming, and we, we heard it uh, again this morning in the epistle. Paul's writing about the kingdom's coming one day, and we believe that. We've all believed here this morning the kingdom's going to come. Jesus will return. Well, this morning we hear in uh, the second part of Matthew 25 about the kingdom coming in the form of a master who leaves three servants in charge of his property. These three servants had been living and working side by side with the master, and this time Jesus is telling his disciples about what it will be like for those who have been hanging around the master, if you will, who don't use their gifts wisely, who don't use their gifts wisely. So last week it was about not being prepared, this week about not using your gifts, and Tyler told me, as I said, yeah, I'll preach this week, he said, but we really need a, a, a sermon on generosity. We need to make sure as we get closer to Christmas, you know, we, we need to preach a sermon about generosity. <laughs> yes, yeah. And um, I said, yeah, yeah, that'll be easy, you know, this is all, and then I went, wow, it's, you know, it was, it's about being prepared last week, it's about saving, you know, being ready, saving your oil. And this week it's about talents, which are, are a sum of money. So it's money, money, money. And this ought to be a piece of cake, talking about money uh, this morning. Everybody loves to talk about it. So um, and I, I can't say that I can I could explain to you all what exactly that kingdom come is going to look like. I mean, what's it going to be like when Jesus comes from heaven to this earth to redeem it? Um, but I think Matthew 25 draws a pretty startling and vivid picture. Uh, Corey Kincaid in our staff meeting, we do a Bible study on Wednesday, and he said that it will look something like a time when Jesus comes to judge our actions, Jesus comes to judge our actions, to see if they are in accord or agreement with our professed faith. In other words, if, is what we say here every Sunday in front of all of our good Christian friends the same way we behave outside the walls of this place? And so this morning, it's not so much an evangelistic message that I want to bring to you because that's not what Jesus is doing in the gospel. It's a discipleship message. It's a dis message about how we behave. And so I'm going to be very cautious to pull back on the reins because I don't want to dive into a sermon that at the end says, and this is what you should do. You should go do this. Um, that doesn't do anybody any good. I, I hope by the end of this, the truth of God's word will have settled on your heart um, so, that it, so that God's truth changes you, not not so much me telling you about a way you should behave. And it's clear this morning in the gospel that there are two opposing views about God and there are two opposing views about the master. You've got the first two servants who um, feel like what the master's done for them by giving them these five talents and two talents is an expression of freedom. Um, we're gonna talk a little, we're, uh, I'm gonna talk a little bit about the uh, passage as I go on further, but the first two, it seems to me, view this gifting, this giving of the talents as an opportunity for freedom. Um, they approach life, if you, if you will, from a radical perspective, and that perspective is that it's all the master's. The gifts, the rules, the outcomes of life are all the master's problem or responsibility. It's all his. And knowing and believing that apparently brings freedom, growth, and true life. Knowing that brings growth and true life to these first two servants. 
it reminded me of a verse that we study a lot in Crown Ministries, which was an old course. Before Dave Ramsey was on the radio, there was a course that came out of Florida called Crown Ministries, and there was a friend of mine who was in there with me. We were both being punished, I think. So we, we took Crown Ministries with our wives, and we found out that we were really not handling God's money the right way. Well, there was a verse in there that Todd Davenport loved, and he memorized it very easily. It's 1 Chronicles 29.11. 1 Chronicles 29.11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything on heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted over, as head over all. That's the view the first two servants have. That's the view, that God is in charge, God is giving the gifts, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing. The other view, or the view of the third servant in this, is that the master, or God, is somebody to be feared because of his punishing and unfair nature. And that fear leaves the third servant paralyzed, right? He's paralyzed with fear. Um, he's clearly at odds with this master who operates in a realm that the third person doesn't deem as fair or good. Let me just say real quick, burying your money back in first century times wasn't a bad thing. Um, it was a way that most common people protected their money. They buried it in the backyard. When you read or hear that sermon, you think, oh, that poor guy, he never should have buried his money. Well, that's actually what people did, the common person. They buried their money. People did take it to banks, so don't dwell too long on, oh, it was all about burying the money. That wasn't that bad of a thing. And I don't believe that the third servant's view of, of the master is the truth, and I hope that as we move through the gospel this morning, you'll come to believe that it's not also. There are two points I want to make, just two, that I believe the gospel will help me make. And the first is that God is generous. God is generous. I actually preached that back at the beginning of the year, that God's generous. And secondly, these gifts that he gives us have a purpose. God is generous. The gifts that he gives us have a purpose. Consequently, like Corey said, our belief or disbelief in these two truths, that God is generous and that the gifts have a purpose, will shape the way we live and participate in bringing the kingdom here now. Because that can happen. The kingdom can break in now. The kingdom will come in all of its fullness one day forever. But the kingdom can break in here now. The implicit message that this passage is trying to get us to understand is that our faith, not our money, not our titles, not our friends, our marriages, our jobs, our faith is the most valuable asset we have. More than our beach houses, more than our savings. And let me be clear. My point is that this faith is a gift this faith is a gift. It's not something we bring to the equation. It comes from outside ourselves. And it's given to each person who believes, like the talents, for us to exercise and use, each according to his own ability. And I'm going to end this morning by making that point again. So let me look at a couple of important things in the text that I believe speak about God's nature and to my point. And then I'll wrap up as I try to present how I believe understanding and letting these truths settle on your heart will shape your life. So the first thing we notice in today's gospel, verse 15, is that each of the servants is given these talents, look there, each according to his ability. That should tell us that we all have different abilities, which are, of course, a gift from the master, but each of us has different ones. If you've taken uh, the Alpha Course, one of the things we do on Saturday morning of the Holy Spirit weekend is we go over 1 Corinthians 12, 1 through 13. And we wrestle with and talk a lot about what do the gifts look like and how do they operate. 
And everybody, almost to a person, gets to the place at the end of that Saturday morning where they come to understand that these gifts are a shared responsibility, not for the individual, not for the individual, but for the community, for the community. So our hospitality, our generosity, our service to others, all are for the purposes of building up and bringing the kingdom here on earth now. Think about Lumpkin's going away party. There were a million moving parts to that. There were lots of people who spent time months in advance. There were people who were working like beavers that night. There were people working behind the scenes to stick, apparently, koozies and tennis balls in his car. I didn't hear anything about that, but so his car was filled with koozies and tennis balls later. But so there's all these people, this should make you laugh, all these people um, working, using their gifts, baking, serving, cleaning up, all for the benefit of the community, all bringing glory to God. Look at verse 16. I thought this was very interesting. Each person is given their talents, and what they do is they go off at once. It says up there, went at once and put his or her money to work and gave five bags more. So we're given these gifts, God's given us these gifts, and we're sent out into the world to bring glory to God, the one who gave us the gifts. But here's the catch. For me, at least, it's very difficult once I put my blinker on and turn on to West Carolina to remember that. I tend to get out there with my hands on the steering wheel, and I want to take back control of my life within minutes of leaving this place. I've got a very short memory. Um, but that's not the way the, the first two servants view their life. Uh, they take these gifts, and then they thankfully return more to the master. Well, how'd they do it? This ought to be the part that makes you scratch your head. It seems pretty straightforward, actually, um, but it is a hang-up for most of us because we want to earn it. But that's not what the text says. They didn't earn it, did they? The first two took their talents, and can you put verse 16 back up one more time? Went at once and put his or her money to work. So money has the ability, I want to make sure I get this right, to make more based on nothing we do except putting it to work. Money has the ability to do what it's supposed to do based on nothing that we do except putting it to work. Money works when we allow it to be used for God's glory. Also notice again, like faith, they didn't create the money. The money was given to them, and it's been given to us. That should bother some of us. It bothered me because I asked myself, what do you mean money has the ability to work and we didn't create it? Well, my point is that money's been around long before we stepped foot on the earth. Money will be around long after. So it's not as if we're taking money and doing something new or creative with it. Money has its own purpose. So God's generosity and the truth that his gifts have a purpose can shape us in different ways. There's my point. Because the gospel tells us that whatever view we have of the master is the thing that motivates us or moves us to respond. The response that Jesus and the master should, that we should have should be one that looks like the person who uses what he or she has been given rather than hoards it. You use what you've been given rather than hoards it. In other words, and you've all heard this expression, it's not what we have, it's what we do with it. It's not what we have, it's what we do with it. Our high school band director, Gus Moody, used to tell us, okay, your parents have paid for the instruments, you've sat through all the practices, you've got the uniform, you're going to go out on the field. Even if you forget what we're playing, blow in the instrument. Just blow in it. Make a noise. I mean, it's not what you have in your hand, it's what you do with it. Just blow in the instrument. We're not going to meet God or St. Peter at the pearly gates, and he's going to greet us with a big smile on his face and say, man, beautiful yard. Your St. Augustine, your St. Augustine looks awesome. Or he's not going to say, wow, that second beach house you bought, you decorated that just so beautifully. I loved what you put in that beach house you bought. 
Or that money that you saved, way, way to go. You, you almost saved as much as somebody. No, no, no. He's going to look at us, I believe, and say, what did you do with what I gave you? Here's what that looks like, brothers and sisters. There's a person in our congregation battling cancer. He has to be at treatments at Medical University of South Carolina. He lives in Somerville. There's another couple in our congregation that own a beach house. That's only minutes from Medical University of South Carolina. They weren't that close of friends, but the Spirit of God moved the two couples together. Couple B said, you know what? Why don't you just use our beach house while you're in this process of going through all the chemotherapies and things? Uh, gratis, no charge. We all know what a beach house rents for each week, right? Even in the off season, $2,000. He's been there about four weeks. That's $8,000. That this one couple said, you know what? Just use it. God gave us the beach house. God gave our family this beach house. We've had lovely times in it. We want to share it with you. We want to share it with you. That's what it looks like. There was a poll in this month's Christianity Today that asked evangelicals, and that's what we are, whether you know it or not, we believe the Bible's true. So there's a poll in Christianity Today that asked evangelicals 10 questions, and it was startling because to me it was surprising how many people have a skewed or misinformed understanding of the character or nature of God. Carrie, we put the poll up however we ended up. All right. There was 10 questions, and I think we have two of them here. Here you go. This was like questions seven and eight. And I just want to, I want you to just read the first one with me. Well, actually, we, we got that wrong. Um, those are two of the questions. Keep going. Ah, here we go. Look at the first one. People first seek God, then he responds with grace. People first seek God. So unbelievers are walking around the world out there, they're going to their Starbucks, they're fishing, they're golfing, whatever they're doing this morning, unaware that, that there is a God, and they decide on their own that there is a God, and they're going to respond, and then God reaches out to them. That's not the truth, is it? We don't believe that. But 71% of the people polled, or 7 out of 10 evangelicals, 7 out of 10 people sitting in this pew, in, these, in this pews, may think that that they have to do something. They have to make up their mind to do something and then God is gonna respond. That's not the truth. God's responded with his grace before you took a breath on this earth, before I took a breath on this earth. The second one, people must contribute their own effort for personal salvation. 56% of the people, or 5.6 out of 10, believe that there's something we must do, something we must do, putting money in the plate, serving on the altar guild, becoming a priest. Uh, there's something we must do in order to obtain our personal salvation. That's not true. God does it all, like the master in today's gospel. God does it all. It all comes from the master. I was really, really surprised when I saw that. And it's an idea or a concept that I found the book of James, which is the one most people will hold up if they're going to talk about, well, we've got to do something, don't we? We have to respond to God somehow, don't we? Aren't we somehow involved in our sanctification? Yes. Yes, we are. Once we receive by grace this faith, then we are called to move out into the world. That's what this whole sermon's about is our moving out of the world. But listen to what the book of James says about this faith. It's the first chapter, the very beginning of the book of James, this book about works First chapter, verses 16 and 17. So James is just getting into his letter about working out our faith, and he says this, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. 
Every good and perfect gift is from above. Coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. So my question this morning to myself and all of us here is, do we really believe that God is doing all the work, giving all the gifts? And our response is just to respond to that free gift of grace. It ought to be freeing. It freed the first two servants. But I'm sure there are still some of us who are sitting here saying, wait, what? That seems too simple. It's got to be harder than that, Gary. Well, it actually is hard. It is hard. Um, This side of heaven, we make mistakes. This side of heaven, like I explained, we pull back and say, no, God, I think I'm going to take control of this situation. Um, This side of heaven, we live in fear that there's not going to be enough to go around. If I don't save enough, if I don't uh, take care of my stuff enough, if I don't do something with whatever I've been given, there won't be enough. We fear scarcity. We fear scarcity. But let me tell you what that looks like when the world fears scarcity. I got to go meet, thanks to my brother, Tim Jones, uh, George and Molly Green of Water Missions International. You've all probably seen them in the paper, and most of you may have met them. I'm maybe the last person in Low Country to meet George and Molly. But um, I got to take my friend Fred over to meet George and Molly Green of Water Missions. And George Green looked right at Fred and I and said these words, There is no other explanation for the fact that all of the world in 2014 doesn't have clean drinking water except for greed and exploitation. There is no reason in the world why at least everyone has access to clean drinking water. My friend Fred landed, got home after 29 hours, and the first thing he was greeted with was his son suffering from a malaria-borne virus that he had gotten through water, not from a mosquito sting, and he had to rush him back to Nairobi. So the unclean water that my friend's family's drinking is causing problems in 2014, and George Green is convinced that the only reason it still exists is because of greed and because of exploitation. There ought, to be, there ought to be clean drinking water for everybody in the world at least. If they don't have antibiotics, if they don't have good transportation electricity, but there ought to at least be clean drinking water. And I don't want to get hung up on that. There's a great book written a few years ago called Rich Christians in the Age of Hunger. It's written by Ron Sider. If you want to read more about what I'm talking about, I can, I can give you that title again later. But back to my point. Living as Paul says, a new creation unbound by worry of punishment and condemnation allows our gifts to be nurtured and the community, St. Paul's, into which we've been placed to flourish. Think of the party again. Think of the Kennedy Beach House. Um, I'll give you some more specific examples. My father-in-law will tell you he's never happier than when he has a tape measure or a hammer in his hand. They built, he and Jim McClary built a shed with other guys out there. My mother-in-law would say the same thing about beading. I personally never need to bead once in my life, but apparently beading is her gift, and apparently it has a benefit to the tea room because they sell lots of things that have been beaded. My sister-in-law might say that she's never felt more purposeful than when she's praying for other people. Different gifts that God has given. Different gifts. And this is the, this is the way the first two servants approach uh, their master in, the first, in this gospel this morning. But on the other hand, the third servant sees the master as unfair and harsh, who, as verse 24 points out, harvests where he has not sown and gathers where he has not, harvests where he has not sown and gathers where he has not grown seed. And we discussed in our life group that this was a disconcerting verse because we thought, wait a minute, that's not Jesus. Jesus doesn't, um, let me make sure I get this right. Jesus doesn't harvest where he has not sown and gather where he has not scattered, right? Jesus was there before creation. Through Jesus, all things were made. So this, this can't be right, can it? It's actually a lie. 
The third servant believes a lie. And it's that lie that some of us here whispered in the back of our minds. You earn everything you get. Or expect nothing from no one and you won't be disappointed. Or one of the lies I used to hear. Your family are the only people in the world you can trust or count on. What these lies do is they teach us personal dependence. And worst of all, they teach us that a God who created everything doesn't care for us, doesn't love us. He's some folded, armed, angry old man sitting up there in heaven watching for us to be idle or unproductive. So look busy. And um, yeah, so look busy. It's, it's not the truth. And so I wondered how these two views, how, how, could, how could three people working for their master who produced these, these reactions, how could that happen? How could that happen? And it hit me, it's fear. I, I said it earlier in the sermon, it's fear. Uh, fear is the opposite of being generous. It's not being stingy, but fear. Because like I mentioned earlier, fear says there won't be enough to go around. Annabelle Smith once said at a meeting we had years ago, I don't give because I'm rich. I'm rich because I give. Somebody had said to her in the meeting, oh, Mrs. Smith, you know, you can afford to give X number of dollars. You're rich. And Annabelle Smith said, I don't give because I'm rich. I'm rich because I'm give. I give. This approach lets God do all the work, puts all the responsibility on God like that passage from Chronicles said. It's not on what we achieved. There are no merit-based scholarships in heaven. Jesus is the only entrance requirement, not our status, our last name, or even the kinds of things we did today on our way to church. None of that merits our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. The only thing that matters is belief in the Son. Trusting in his righteousness, relying on his work to bring us back into relationship with the Father, who loves us beyond measure. He's not standing there with his arms folded this morning. He's looking down from heaven with Jesus at his side, and he's smiling at us. He's so generous that he lays down his life for us. And he wants us to share in this goodness. So we get to the end of, this, of the gospel this morning, verse 28. Um, and it, it starts this word of, a world of, whirlwind of panic. Um, because what the master says to the third servant is, so take the bags of gold from this, or the one bag of gold from this third servant and give it to the one who has plenty. And some of us may have been thinking at that time, oh my God, I'm doomed God's going to take my stuff if I'm not acting faithfully with it. My season football tickets, my hunt club or fitness membership, you fill in the blank. Well, that's not what Jesus is saying at all. Remember, he's referring to something of greater value than our money. He's referring to our faith. Because our faith is the thing that drives us. Take it away, take our faith away, and we're left cold and crying in the fetal position, if you will, incapacitated and useless to the Lord. We'll bury it in the ground every time. So my prayer this morning is that we ask God to fill us with more faith. I'm not going to stand up here and say our prayer would be that we're more generous. Um, Our faith will drive that. Ask God for more faith. We'll become generous and grateful people with what he has given us and will give us. He promises to provide for our needs. All we need to do is look around at what he has already done for us. He gives us more than we can imagine or deserve. And in most cases, treated us better than we ever asked or could imagine. I uh, always on Sunday morning, I'm a little panicky as I'm going to preach. And so uh, Sue and I, like ships in the night, were passing in and out of the restroom. And um, she said, Ephesians 3, Ephesians 3. You know, she started to spout off Ephesians 3 to me this morning. She said, I said, did you read the end of my sermon? She went, what? 
She said, no, that was my uh, daily, my, my, she does a little daily devotional. That was my daily devotional. I said, well, that's actually how I'm ending the sermon this morning, Ephesians 3. Um, and Ephesians 3 speaks to us and should speak to us about this um, unimaginable God, the God whose words don't work to describe his generosity and words don't work to describe his purposing us. So I'm going to read Ephesians 3, 16 through 21 to you. Just close your eyes. I'll try to read it slowly. And think about this God who is generous and think about this God who, whose gifts that he gives have purpose. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen us with power through his spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. And I pray that we, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that we may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Amen.